Well, the Winter Olympics are upon us, and they are not without controversy, are they? If you follow the news, you know a little bit about that. Uh, and there's a, one item about the Olympics in the news that were, was kind of curious about a threat that's happening, and it's not a civil liberties threat so much as it is a technology threat, and um, it involves something that doesn't sound like it should be in the Winter Olympics, spear fishing. Now, not the kind of javelin throwing you get in the summer, but the more digital kind of fishing where they're targeted efforts to steal people's personal identity. So they're warning all of the athletes and the coaches and the teams who are there in Beijing to be extra vigilant with their phones and their computers because uh, it's public knowledge who is there. And so there's all of these phishing scams to try to get information. And some of you have fallen prey to spams and scams like that. You know it can be a real pain to deal with that when your identity gets stolen. It normally doesn't result in death, but it is a painful piercing of your private security. Well, the passage we're in today in 1 Samuel 26 involves a piercing and a spear that, and a piercing of private security, but it is much more pointy and the deadly kind of spear that's going to be talked about in this story. As the story of David sparing Saul's life one more time is told, we're going to see a flipping of expectations because it starts with Saul hunting David down like some kind of a wild animal in the countryside, and yet in the end, it's David who holds the spear. David is once again tempted to kill Saul and be done with his troubles, but instead of spearing him, he spares him. What we're going to learn from this story today and next week is that David's second sparing of Saul shows how we can trust God to turn things aright without our doing things wrong. I'd like us to read at this point verses 1 to 12 of chapter 26. There's more to the story we'll continue in next week, but Verse 1 of chapter 26 says, Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding in the hill of Hakalah, which is before Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having with him 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search for David in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul camped in the hill of Hakalah, which is before Jeshimon, beside the road. And David was staying in the wilderness. And when he saw that Saul came after him in the wilderness, David sent out spies, and he knew that Saul was definitely coming. David then arose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. And Saul was lying in the circle of the camp, and the people were camped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite, and to Abishai the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai came to the people by night, and behold, Saul lay sleeping inside the circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the people were lying around him. Then Abishai said to him, Today God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now, therefore, please, let me strike him with a spear to the ground with one stroke. I will not strike him twice. 
But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him. For who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? David also said, As the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him, or his day will come that he dies, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But now please, take the spear that is at his head and the jug of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water from beside Saul's head and they went away. But no one saw it or knew it, nor did anyone awake, for they were all asleep because a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. This is the third of three stories about David sparing life. In chapter 24, he spared Saul's life in the cave. In chapter 25, he was counseled to spare Nabal's life at Carmel, and here he is in the wilderness sparing Saul's life again. The the author of these stories is led by the Spirit to stress how David is really the one who is fit to be the wise ruler of Israel, and to underline the fact that he did not come to the throne by means of some bloody coup. And this text teaches us as well that like David, we can wait on God to make wrongs right and not take matters into our own hands. Here's a preview of what we'll see in this chapter, and we'll make it through only two of these points this morning. We'll see, firstly, Saul's deadly hunt for innocent David, and then David's stealthy move on sleeping Saul. Next week, we'll see David's surprise call to Saul's guards. And finally, Saul's last words on David's future. Come with me to verses 1 to 5, where we see the first of these movements of the story. Saul's deadly hunt for innocent David. These first five verses have a lot of coming and going with them. In fact, the the subjects of the sentences alternate between something that Saul does and something that, well, first the Ziphites and then Saul and then David and then Saul and then David and Saul and David. It switches back and forth about six times. But near the end of these verses, the order switches. It's David doing things and then Saul as the tables start to turn. Uh, Verse 1 starts off with what we could call evil intelligence. Verse 1, then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, is not David hiding in the hill of Hakalah, which is before Jeshimon? Now, if you've been with us in this series, some of these hard-to-say names might sound a little familiar, and that's because they're mentioned in chapters 23 and 24. Saul is back at his capital at Gibeah, there in the north, And 25 miles to the south is the town of Ziph and the surrounding wilderness uh, around it. The people of Ziph have traveled all the way up to the capital, going up the ridge route to get there, and have snitched on David again. Hakalah was an area mentioned in chapter 23, verse 19, where David was hiding for a time. It mentions that there were strongholds in this place, natural caves that had been reinforced uh, for different purposes. And this hill of Hakalah is uh, next to or facing Jeshimon, which is a word that basically means wasteland. So you've got hill country giving way to vast open desert. 
the, the Ziphites did this to David before, and I want you to look back with me in chapter 23, verse 14, where it's mentioned, David stayed in the wilderness in the strongholds and remained in the hill country in the wilderness of Ziph, and Saul sought him every day, but God did not deliver him into his hand. And we look now at verse 19. Then Ziphites came up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is David not hiding with us in the strongholds at Horesh on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the south of Jeshimon? And then they appealed to him with very flowery language, Come down and deal with your enemy. Get rid of him. Well, here in chapter 26, they rat him out again. And, and this is so painfully ironic because what tribe is David from? He's from the tribe of Judah. What tribe are the Ziphites from? They're the tribe of Judah. You would think these people, of anybody in the nation of Israel, would be friendly towards him, but they're siding with the corrupt king. They're loyalists to Saul. And I, they probably felt threatened by what had happened in the previous chapter where God struck Nabal dead and David marries Nabal's wife. And now David is married into the Calebite family, the, a very powerful clan in the south of Judah. When they tell Saul that David is there, they frame it as a question, is not he, David, hiding in the hill country? It, they, they, they word it in such a way as to disparage David, to suggest he's a hider, he's afraid. Come and get him. Now this report that comes to Saul is a test. It's a test for him because the last time he and David are said to have met at the end of chapter 24, David is told by Saul, you are God's anointed, you will surely be king. And they parted. And it seemed like that was going to be the end of their hostilities. Here's a test. Now, the previous chapter ended with a hint that there was still trouble. The previous chapter ended by the, almost like the side comment, now Saul had given David's wife, Michal, away to someone else. It's a hint trouble is still there. This story is going to present David with a test, too. He gets a report about what's uh, being done, where Saul is, and he has the opportunity to sin to get what he wants. And in these two tests, Saul will fail and David will pass. The temptations that you and I face are tests. They're tests and the test is, will we trust and obey God and do what is right? Or do what we think is best, what feels best, what suits us best, what might be easier and have less friction? Will we sin to do what pleases us? And you know, the more power, position, and privilege you have, the greater the tests are. Because you have this feeling that you can get away with more because of the position that you're in. All of us need to remember, even those of us who have a lot of authority, a lot of potential to do things our own way, that the ultimate power belongs to God. And there is no getting past Him. Our power and our privilege is borrowed. And it does not allow us to get away with anything. So here is the evil intelligence that comes to Saul and gives him a test, a test that he will fail 
Here is a picture, by the way, of what this wilderness country of Hakalah and the uh, wilderness of Ziph is like. We see David, uh, Saul coming down in verses 2 through 5 and setting up camp. The king's camp is set up, and particularly we see him encamped in the country in verses 2 and 3. Look at those verses again with me. So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph, having with him 3,000 chosen men of Israel to search for David in the wilderness of Ziph. Saul camped in the hill of Hakalah, which is before Jeshimon, beside the road. We'll stop right there. His 3,000 strong army. When it says these are chosen men, that means this is his standing army. The armies of Israel had a standing corps, and then there were people who were on reserve, basically. Uh, this is his regularly trained standing army that comes down with him. <laughs> the, the same number of guys he brought with him down in chapter 24 to this same area. Now, wouldn't you like to have heard the chatter amongst the troops as they go down there again? Any of you who've been in the military know that the troops have a lot of questions like, why in the world are they doing this again? Has anyone said anything to them about, you know, those upper people that maybe we shouldn't be doing this, that this is a fool, this didn't work out well last time? I can only imagine what the chatter might have been. The text repeatedly mentions where they're going, the wilderness of Ziph. It's mentioned like three times in a few verses. The Ziphites were a large clan who lived in a fairly desolate region. They, they, it wasn't like, uh, you know, the Sahara, uh, but this is no fertile particularly fertile area. The wilderness of Ziph. Twice David gets in trouble down here. It's more like the wilderness of Zap for him. They're after him again. It said that there in verse 2, look at the wording, Saul arose and went down. Maybe that sounds a little funny to you in English. Uh, he rose and went down. But that's a Hebrew idiom that means he did it quickly. He was swift to pull his troops down the road in the, into the south. Don't miss the significance of that. Because the last time the Ziphites ratted out David in chapter 23, Saul was kind of hesitant to go down there. And so he told them in chapter 23, verses 22 to 23, the paraphrases, okay, well, you guys go down there, you search for them, and you let me know when you find them. And, and we'll kind of slowly make our way down, and then once we get the intelligence, we'll, we'll go after them wherever we need to go. But now, Saul, there's no more wait, wait for more intel. It's get down there as fast as he can. What happened to the peace at the end of chapter 24? What happened to the confession that you are God's man, you're going to be the next king? Where did all that go? I mean, we marvel at Saul's folly, don't we? Hasn't he learned? You know, I guess a lot has happened since, a lot has changed since the end of chapter 24. Samuel has died. Nabal has died. David has married into a very powerful family. All of that's changed. And one thing that has not changed is Saul's heart. So even though he is full of pious sounding words, there was no corresponding change within his heart. And it is a caution, a warning to all of us about. Change, uh, the change of life is not just a matter of saying the right things. It's a matter of internal transformation that only the gospel of Christ can produce in us. And Saul knew nothing of that transforming power at this point in his life. It's a great illustration, too, about how sin makes us stupid. Stupid. 
Now, remember the previous chapter, the guy in the ball whose name rhymed with the word for fool? It was a long, long chapter about how David finally ended up dealing with God dealt with a fool. And now you get to this chapter and David is dealing with another kind of fool. In fact, Saul will even call himself that at the end of this chapter. Look with me, chapter 26, verse 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will not harm you against my, uh, again because my life is precious in your sight this day. Behold, I have played the fool and committed a serious error. We need to beware, be reminded often, of the stupefying effects of sin. Sin, when we indulge in it, when we entertain it, it makes us stupid. Sometimes we think when we sin that we're being clever or sophisticated. (laughs) But what it really does is fashion us into fools. Back here in verse 3, as Saul sets up camp, the contingency of his troops sets up, uh, they bivouac there, and I'm sure Saul has sent out some spies to try to find where he is, and they situate themselves along Mount Hakalah, alongside the road facing the wilderness. They haven't found David, but David has found them. And in the middle of this verse, the tables start to turn. The subject line starts to lead off when David and David and David did such and such. We're told in the middle of verse 3, and David was staying in the wilderness. When he saw that, uh, when he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, David sent out spies, and he knew that Saul was definitely coming. David gets some intelligence, counterintelligence. He sends out spies to confirm that it is actually Saul himself and not some other troop movement that's been misreported. And from this point on, David will become the pursuer. It's ironic in chapter 23 when uh, Saul first heard the word from the Ziphites, he told them, now you, you get out your spies and you tell me of a certainty that he's there. And that's exactly what David does here. He learned that, David, that Saul certainly was there. Oh, the tables have turned. One commentator has said that David is here depicted as a careful strategist in contrast to Saul, who simply accepts the Ziphites' rumor and rushes into battle. Now, what David finds is that Saul and his men are encircled for safety. Uh, So they thought. Verse 5, David then arose and came to the place where Saul had camped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, and Abner, the son of Ner, the commander of his army. And Saul was lying in the circle of the camp, and the people were camped around him. It seems that David uses his knowledge of the topography of the hill that they're at and the dark of night to get as clear of a glimpse as he can. There would be torchlights burning and some visibility. It's interesting, you know, the last time David and Saul met was in the dark of a cave. And now this next time they meet, it's in the dark of night. David seems to be sneaking around to get as much intel as he can. It reminds me of the story of Gideon who snuck into the camp of the Midianites in Judges 7 to find out what the enemy was planning. He wasn't planning to attack at that moment, but to find out as much as he could. 
Well, this mission of David's is a very fruitful reconnaissance mission. He gets exact coordinates. He sees who is advising Saul at the moment, his chief of command, who's also his uncle, Abner. He sees the layout of the camp and even how, the, how things are circled around. This word circle refers to something like a ring of wagons. So here's the very center of the camp and the command is the royal command is put there, possibly reinforced by trenches or snares and traps. But despite their being well encamped along a mountain alongside a strategic road with, strategic, with a strategic inner camp, David is able to sneak right into the middle of it. We'll learn later that David's ability to avoid, evade 3,000 men wasn't just he was sneaky, but God was at work. God was enabling something even beyond what his good natural abilities would allow. It also underscores the fact that Saul's guards are a joke. In fact, this is something that David will do in the the middle of this chapter. He's going to taunt Abner. What kind of a security guard are you? Look at what I got. Night was the most vulnerable time for an encamped army. This is when you're... The most vigilance needs to be set up in terms of a guard. But Saul has only the arm of flesh for his army. And the arm of flesh will fail you. Armies of flesh will fail you. Saul has no divine help. And it reminds us that we, we, cannot, we cannot trust in our own devices and go our own way and think it's God's going to make it all work out right. Saul's deadly hunt for innocent David is starting to turn in on him. And we see that clearly as we come to the second half of our outline today. Verses 6 through 12, David's stealthy move on sleeping Saul. We see David in verses 6 to 7 penetrating the king's camp. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Abishai the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, saying, Who will go down with me to Saul in the camp? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. (coughs) For the first time in a long time, some friends, associates of David, are named. One of them is an outsider. One of them is a relative. Ahimelech, the Hittite, uh, means a Hittite is not a tribe of the Israelites. This is a foreign people. He's a, uh, an outsider. He's probably a mercenary. There are some other Hittites who will associate themselves with David. Remember the name of Bathsheba's first wife? Uriah, the Hittite. It was not uncommon for royal characters to have uh, foreign associates high in command. Uh, Ahimelech is a, a common name. There, there was a high priest who was murdered early with the same name. They're not the same person. Uh, this man, this Hittite, who is closest to David at this moment, is never mentioned again. But Abishai is mentioned again. Now, his father was, uh, actually his mother was Zeruiah. His brother is Joab. And um, all of that means that this man, Abishai, is David's nephew. He will become one of David's chief officers. He will be heralded later on as one of David's mighty men. 
His more famous brother, Joab, is only mentioned here at this point in the story, but when we come to 2 Samuel, Joab will come to center stage. Now, of these two men closest to David, the mercenary and the relative, Abishai is the more zealous at this moment. Uh, The zeal of Abishai and Joab, on one hand, is a neat thing. It's a good thing. (laughs) But it's also a bad thing. (laughs) The, The zeal that these men have for blood is going to lead David into trouble in the years to come. We'll even see a little hint of that when we come to verse 8. Before we move on, I I guess we have to ask the question, what exactly does David want to do by probably sneaking down the hill and getting into the inner camp to confront Saul? What's his plan? What's his motive? Is he thinking about hurting Saul, killing Saul? Based on what happens in the verses after, I don't think so. Is David doing this to test his men to see who he can trust and who is trusting in God with him? Perhaps. Is David trying to prove to others that God's presence is especially with him? That is one thing that becomes clear in this story. The Lord has not only brought about a sovereign meeting of these people, but there is miraculous intervention that happens when we come to verse 12. Maybe it's a mix of these things. David doesn't seem to share everything he's thinking, but Abishai, is, uh, he's ready to go. And the Hebrew text says, I will go down. Here I am. I'll, I'll do it. Verse 7, this two-man infiltration group starts out. So David and Abishai came to the people, that's Saul's troops, by night. And behold, Saul lay sleeping inside the circle of the camp with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the people were lying around him. It's the dark of night. They're all asleep. There's nothing unusual, by the way, about this word for sleep. There will be a special word for sleep used when we get to verse 12. But for now, all they can see is everyone's asleep. I mean, everyone's asleep. Even the people who shouldn't be asleep are asleep. There's the king, his chief of command, out cold. And Saul's famous spear is sticking in the ground by his head. That same spear he had chucked at David three times. The same spear he chucked at his own son, Jonathan. The spear he often held up while he was sitting in court making decisions about who to kill and how to get David. This spear that Saul is holding was probably a royal spear, somewhat like kings will hold a mace, which is a weapon, but they often hold an ornate one. Or maybe like in the King Arthur tales about he had his royal sword, Excalibur. This is a picture of an ancient spearhead that belonged to a king. And there's all sorts of ornate etchings in it. And yet, it'll kill you, too. That's what kind of thing Saul seems to have. It's ironic that Saul's spear, which is positioned there for his protection, is now right at David's hand to become a tool for his own destruction. John Woodhouse comments, David knew that symbol of Saul's violent power well. 
it had whistled past his ears three times. But now it was not in Saul's hand. It was stuck in the ground beside his sleeping and therefore very vulnerable head. So he saw, you know, trusting in all his might, 3,000 men, his chosen associate, and his trusty spear. But when we don't trust in the Lord, the things we trust in to protect us most can turn out to be boomerangs. Did you hear that? When we're not trusting in the Lord, when we're going our own way, doing our own things, we set up all sorts of protocols and safety measures to keep our way strong. The very things we trust in can turn back to bite us. Now, David is going to face renewed temptation here in verse 8. Saul was tempted in verse 1. David will be tempted here in verse 8. The verse says, Then Abishai said to David, Today, I'm, I don't know how loud this whisper is, God has delivered your enemy into your hand. Now, therefore, please let me strike him with a spear to the ground with one stroke, and I will not strike him the second time. Does this sound a little familiar? Doesn't this sound like what David's associates were saying to him in the cave in chapter 24, verse 4? God's given him into your hand. Now's the time to... Here's another person claiming to have insight into why God's providence had played out this way. In fact, uh, Abishai's wording is even stronger than what David's unnamed associate said earlier. The word for delivered here is a very, very strong word suggesting decisive action. God has truly given him into your hand. But the biggest difference in what Abishai says and what was said to David earlier is that Abishai offers to do the killing himself. You know, earlier David said, I'm not going to do it. And Abishai, well, then let me do it. Maybe he thinks that will alleviate David's troubled conscience. And he promises to do it right and do it quick. This is a variation on the temptation David had had before. You know, it is a temptation that God's people often face. It is a temptation like what Jesus faced with his overzealous disciples. Remember, at the, even after the, you know, the end of Jesus' ministry, before the crucifixion, Peter was ready to serve up sliced ears to advance the kingdom. And Jesus has to tell Peter, put away your sword. That's not the way of the kingdom. Now, what Abishai says is partly right. It is true that God had delivered Saul into David's hand. David says this in verse 23. Look, look at that briefly with me. Verse 23. The, the Lord will repay each man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord delivered you into my hand today. But I refuse to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. It was true he was under David's power, but it is false to say that that's what David was supposed to do to slay him. You see, what Abishai is doing is misinterpreting providence. And this is something 
that God's people are prone to do, misinterpreting providence. That is, God sovereignly bringing about events, and sometimes events come together, and, and, and the options before us seem so tasty. And we think, well, surely God wants me to do this, even though you know from the Bible you ought not do that strike up a relationship, an illicit relationship, but God brought us together, you know. It is, is, I tell you, sin makes us stupid. Sometimes the rationales that people make for sinful relationships they start up are sinful choices on even lesser levels. It is amazing. Sometimes we mistake opportunity for permission. Sometimes we mistake appetite for authorization. Now, the Corinthians, for instance, were, some of them were reasoning, well, God made my body with certain desires, and when it comes to eating, you know, I have a stomach and it gets hungry, so I eat. And therefore, I have sexual desires, so I need to satisfy that. Isn't that the way it is? I mean, God designed us this way. This is what they wrote to Paul. This is part of the reason he writes 1 Corinthians. To say, no, no. (laughs) No, no, no. That's not the way this works. Some people misinterpret providence. They see what are tests as only a treat Oh, Abishai had a tasty idea in his mind. Harold Hofner said that Abishai's talk was delicious language. I'll strike him once. I won't need to do it twice. But Hofner concludes, what is delicious need not and often should not be eaten. Didn't the serpent offer something delicious? Well, David passes the test, and we see him in verses 9, 10, and 11 explaining godly patience. Explaining godly patience. Verse 9, but David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be without guilt? David also said, as the Lord lives, surely the Lord will strike him. Or his day will come that he dies, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Notice how he sandwiches this talk about Saul is the Lord's Messiah. It's, that's the word. He's the Lord's Messiah. He's the small M, anointed one. God put him in that position. It must be God who removes him from that position. David reasons here much the same way he did back in the cave. It's not the Lord's time. David does use a very strong word in verse 9 that we shouldn't miss. Do not destroy him. He didn't just say, don't kill him, don't strike him, but do not destroy him. It's a word that's been used in the chapters before for mass murders, like the people of Ke'alah who were murdered in mass, other such incidents like that. It's usually applied to the massacre of the many. And I think David chooses a loaded word like this because he wants them to see that Saul's assassination would be in a way like murdering the nation in effigy. And of course, more importantly, 
Saul was still the Lord's anointed one. Yes, he was evil and foolish and selfish and rejected. There would be no dynasty of Saul. But David was not authorized to remove him. To strike him down would be sin. Being rid of Saul would be a good thing for David and for the kingdom, but David was not willing to do wrong in order to bring about right. We ought never do wrong in order to bring about right. In verse 10, David swears an oath that he's going to leave vengeance in God's hands. It starts off with that, that phrase, as the Lord lives. That, that's the language you use when you're making a promise of some kind. And th- the exact promise is unstated. It's implied. But as the Lord lives, I am going to trust God to do what he is going to do. He said things like this back in chapter 24 when he was in the cave. Now, that, that was expressed as a prayer. Now, he expresses it as an oath I will not lift up my hand against him. David is even more confident than he's been before that the Lord will make things right. He learned his lesson in that debacle with Nabal in the previous chapter. David sees three ways that the Lord might take Saul out. He might strike him dead like he did with Nabal in the previous chapter. Same word used. It says, though, or perhaps his day will come that he will die, which means that maybe just this natural death will come about. He's an older man. Or maybe he'll be killed in battle, uh, which, as it turns out, is the way that God removed Saul in 1 Samuel 31. But whatever God's choice was, it was not David's choice to make. David is here like our Lord Jesus, who not only had to deal with his disciples with bad ideas, But he had to deal with the devil and his idea. Remember early in Jesus' ministry, he goes out (laughs) a kind of a place where David is, out into the wilderness, and tempts him. And says to him in Matthew 4, 9, showing him all the kingdoms of the world, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Let's think of that. You get the kingdom without the cross. You get the kingdom without all the oppositions of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the other seas. But Jesus knew that the easy way to the kingdom was not the Father's way. John Woodhouse comments, it was there for the taking, for Jesus' taking, but he would not take it. Likewise, David would not take the kingdom, not Abishai's way. So we come now to the last couple verses for our study today where we see David proving the Lord's true favor. The middle of the verse, verse 11, But now, please, take the spear that is at his head and the jug of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jug of water from beside Saul's head, and they went away. But no one saw or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a sound sleep from the Lord had fallen on them. 
David's instruction is to take the spear. I showed you a picture of a royal spearhead before, as well as a jug, which is a word referring to a clay water container, probably something like what you see on the screen on the right, a small, flat clay container, probably with two holes fashioned into it so it could be strapped onto your side. Every soldier would have had one of these. The king has one of these. So why does David want to take these things? These, are, these things have symbolic value. The spear, of course, is symbolic. It's like the, the royal mace. This is his, his insignia of his royal power as well as the thing that could have killed him. And then there's the water container, a simple thing, but, um, you know, it's made of clay. So you know what you can do with those? You can go conk. He could have conked him on the head with it. And you need water if you're going to be okay out in the arid place like this. You go walking around Mojave without water bottles and tell me how your life is doing. Now, of course, Saul could get more water. He could get another weapon. But there's a symbolic value in what he's doing. One commentator puts it this way. Depriving a man of his water and weapon in this region would have constituted a threat to his life. David therefore demonstrated how Saul's life was in his hands. Verse 12 tells us that David took it, which I take to mean that he had authorized Abishai to do it, and so it was as if David had done it. Likewise, if David had authorized Abishai to kill Saul, it would have been like David doing it. This is the talk of authority. And the verse ends with three references to the cluelessness of Saul's watch. No one saw anything, nobody knew anything, nobody woke up. And the reason that was true was not just that, oh, David and Abishai were so sneaky. No, there was divine intervention. We're told that they had a sound sleep. Some of our versions have a deep sleep from the Lord. Now, that's not talking about what some of you might be tempted to do during a sermon. (laughs) This is a special kind of condition that the Lord brings upon people in the Old Testament. It's the same word used to describe what God did to Adam when he took the rib out of him and fashioned Eve. It's the same word used to describe what happened to Abraham when the Lord gave him a vision of them making a covenant together. It's the same word used in Job on two occasions for people who in ancient days who received divine dreams of revelation. It's also used in the book of Isaiah as a word of judgment that will overcome those who don't know the Lord. A deep sleep. God's protection of David was not just a work of providence. There was providence that brought them together at this place, just as they had they've been brought together in the cave before. There's more than providence. That is, the providence is the divine orchestrating of natural events. This is an outright miracle, direct divine intervention. It is a sign of God's presence with David and God's absence from Saul. Now, you and I are not promised to have daily miracles, 
And we don't need daily miracles to know that God is with us. God demonstrated his presence with David mostly through acts of providence. But the word of God gives us exceedingly great and precious promises. That he is with us. Our Lord Jesus, through his spirit, is with us wherever we go. Whatever trouble we find ourselves in. Whatever difficulties we face, whatever temptations we face, if we are His, He is with us. And the greatest of all evidences of God's power with His people is what He did with His Son and raising Him up from the dead. And that resurrection power is alive and well within us. And we need to learn to walk with the God who is with us. And so we will learn, as David has learned in this second sparing of Saul, how we can trust God to turn things right without our turning towards the wrong. Next week we'll come back to this chapter and we'll see David's surprise call to the Saul's guards and Saul's last words on David's future. It's the last time Saul and David will speak. And Saul confesses who David is. Now as we read about uh, the, the rash proposal that Abishai gave to David, maybe we can see a little bit of ourselves. Determined to see God's kingdom advanced, we sometimes resort to doing it our way sometimes to get things done in a way that runs over people or to get things done in a dishonest way or to deal with people in unchristian ways, to deal with the world in unchristian ways. Jesus had disciples like that. Remember one of the names of, some of the names of his disciples? We know Simon Peter, that's the famous Simon, but there was the other Simon, Simon the Zealot a man who probably held sympathies with Jewish patriots who plotted against Rome. People like that wanted Jesus to declare himself king and declare war on Rome, but Jesus knew that that sort of zealotry was ugly and harmful and not God's way. I'll conclude with one quote from Tony Cartledge. David knew that it was better to trust the Lord to save him from Saul without taking Saul's life into his own hands, even though it might lead to more long years of exile and dangerous trials. Jesus knew that the kingdom as God envisioned it would not come through a military rebellion, but through the life and death of a trusting, suffering servant. And so, as Pastor Ed was teaching in the adult class this morning, Jesus' suffering on the cross is not only something that provides atonement, though that is the the primary purpose, it is also an example for us that there is great reward in suffering for righteousness' sake and doing things God's way as we wait on Him to fulfill what He's promised to us in the gospel of Jesus. Lord, we are thankful for this story and the lessons it gives to us. May we not be like Saul, who is thick-headed and dull. May we not be like Abishai, who is rash.
and impulsive and misreading providence. But as we see the providences of life and how you bring things about, may we hold that in tension with what we know from your word and what you call us to be and to do, the way to follow in the way of Christ. And as Christ held on to the promises that were set before him and so was able to endure the cross, may we hold on to the promises you've made to us and endure, knowing that there is a greater glory to come if we will go your way. In the name of Christ, we ask it. Amen.